This is our fourth installment of the Phenotip Speaker Series. And today we are talking about genetic counselors in leadership roles. And I am surrounded by leaders in genetic counseling where we're going to dive into these topics today. So thank you so much for joining us for this fourth installment of the Phenotip Speaker Series. The outline for today's webinar, we're gonna spend about 40 minutes during our panel discussion where we're gonna be talking about lots of topics within this leadership roles in genetic counseling. Then we're going to do 15 minutes of Q&A. I wanna thank Phenotips for being the sponsor of this series. They are the world's first genomic health record system and they've designed software and services that bring workflow to genetic professionals. So as many of us know, electronic health records are not built for genomics. So Phenotips fills in these gaps by providing a complete suite for genetic medicine. And they have tools like pedigree builders, standardized symptom capture and diagnostic insights. So we're really excited to have them be hosting this series and sponsoring and we're started this in light of the pandemic so that we can continue our education and we can be connecting with each other, you know, through Zoom, which has become uh, the new normal of how we're all interacting these days. So I'm your host, Kira Deneen. I'm the host for this webinar. I'm also the host of DNA Today podcast. Recently, we won the People's Choice Podcast Award for the best 2020 science and medic medicine show. So we're really excited about that win. If you are interested in these genetic topics, if you enjoy today's webinar, we have very similar conversations over on the podcast. There's over 130 episodes over the last eight years. Um, so definitely check that out if you're interested. I'm also a prenatal genetic counselor and have recently joined the genetic counseling uh, field here. And so today's webinar topic, I mentioned it's gonna be leadership. We're gonna be discussing how genetic counselors offer unique perspectives and skills that naturally transition to leadership roles. But we found that genetic counselors often aren't in these roles. So we're gonna, we're gonna address this disparity and talk about how we can change that. So to do this, we are hearing from personal leadership experiences from our lovely panel here and hearing their insights on these topics. Um, so it'd be great to have each of you introduce yourself to the audience so they can um, put your face and name together. Hi, I'm Vishalka Tripathi. I'm a consultant genetic counsellor at Guy's and St. Thomas's, working predominantly in cancer genetics. And I'm based in London, UK. My name is Livia Mednet. I am a genetic counsellor and a co-director of the Roberts Individualized Medical Genetics Centre at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in the US. And my name is Jessie Kanta. I'm a genetic counsellor in the laboratory at Seattle Children's Hospital. I manage our laboratory genetic counselor team, and I'm the director of genetic counseling services for PLUGS, which is a lab utilization guidance service. So we have lots of leaders on this call today from all over the globe. So it's really exciting to have you three on for this discussion. Um, just want to remind the viewers that if you have questions during this conversation, we're gonna be answering them in the last 15 minutes of this webinar. So about 12.45 for people that are on the East Coast. And so feel free to put your questions into that Q&A chat. If you see a question that you want answered, upvote it. And we're gonna get to that in the last 15 minutes. So thank you again for everybody that's coming on and watching us and for our lovely panel here. I'd like to start out with a little perspective of how you each pursued and obtained your first leadership role in genetic counseling. Vashaka, would you like to start? Sure. So 
I think I uh, was really well supported by my manager um, when I managed to secure my first leadership role, which was really important because my manager was able to have some really honest conversations with me about relevant opportunities, but also, you know, strengths that I had and some gaps that I had that I needed to develop further. Um, I also invested in a mentor at that time, which was probably the best thing I did. Um, so this was uh, someone more senior within the profession who was in a leadership position already um, outside my line management, which I think is really important um, because that, you know, the mentoring role is a more nurturing role um, in co contrast to your line manager who you might be going to um, and asking for a promotion. Um, to put in a lot of hard work, lots of extra hours. Um, it's certainly not just uh, magically going to happen in nine to five. And I think that's the reality of it, um, regardless of where you work. And to keep your expectations, my expectations, um, realistic that you try and hopefully it may happen and it may never happen um, at where you are at that moment, but certainly it will de develop you and at the right time it will happen. Very well said. Um, I guess I'll go next. I think I want to emphasize that leadership um, in genetic counseling or in any profession has several tracks. And I think when people think about leadership, many people think about having direct reports, supervising a team, um, being kind of in the classic pyramid scale of uh, leadership where someone is at the top, or if you look at the bigger institution, in the middle of that uh, hierarchy of leadership. Um, I certainly did not get started that way. And and I started by being a leader of content and being a leader of process. And I think that is an equally um, satisfying or appropriate way to see your career rise and see your career advance. Um, uh, when I was given more responsibilities, that was within patient management and um, clinical care aspects, I kind of uh, gained my reputation or maybe invested a lot in during the process when first clinical trials came on board for neuromuscular disorders. Um, I had the privilege to be on great teams at CHOP who did those and was entrusted with great um, responsibilities and brought to the table where the conversations happen about uh, how the trials were shaped, how the trials were conducted, uh, discussing the outcomes. So I was definitely not uh, having direct reports, the neurologists were not reporting to me, but I was leading a process and I thought that was a very important process. I think the other part where we can be leaders is um, doing advocacy work because that's leadership, um, getting involved with the organizations uh, for the conditions we care about. And I certainly did that too. Um, the third avenue I think is education and supervision of students. And that's another leadership aspect that we develop um, before we get direct reports. Um, so um, I was definitely very involved with the training program um, and participated in various other ways, not just training genetic counseling students, but also the, at that time, genetics and neurology fellows. Um, so I think that's um, also a very important aspect in a way how we can view leadership that is um, not maybe in traditional boss um, to employer relationship. And the last part I think um, that's also important is um, 
having the opportunity to be on hospital-wide, if you work for a hospital, hospital-wide committees um, that um, maybe not do not have anything to do with genetics. And of course, there you do need some divisional leadership support for um, you to be um, nominated to serve on that committee. And I had that uh, privilege um, to be asked to serve on especially protected information committee uh, and things like that, which are not, so to speak, classic ladder promotions necessarily, but those are awesome first steps to kind of speak for a group of people and represent a thought or a clinical tract. So, and after that, uh, yes, now I am in a position where I do have direct reports, but that wasn't the first step. The first step was um, those other four kind of side steps of non-traditional leadership that gave me a lot of background, a lot of experience, and definitely lots of learning. And so many different ways of just hearing your journey that there are so many different avenues where genetic counselors can be in leadership positions. And I think that's gonna be a main theme of our conversation today of just seeing that it's not just being in say a manager position, but there are so many different avenues to explore when it comes to that. So thank you so much for sharing all of those experiences that you've had so far. Um, Jesse, it'd be great to hear from you as well. I'd love to just echo a lot of what Vishaka and um, Livia have said. Um, many of my notes really are, are similar to yours, um, but for my personal uh, position, it was really um, being connected in the right place at the right time. It sounds cliche, but, but finding a, um, an opportunity. For me, it was a new program within our laboratory focused on laboratory stewardship and a relationship I had with an amazing manager who has herself um, grown in her leadership role. So it just speaks to kind of you know, the foundation she has as a leader, but then also can model for me. So similar to um, what Vishaka said about having a good mentor, um, I think having someone who um, is willing to partner with you and hear what your, um, your goals might be, and then to support those goals. Uh, and then I think the other unique um, factor that is important to highlight for genetic counselors is to just show what, what it is that we can bring. I think we have such a diverse set of skills that goes beyond um, you know, maybe just that patient interaction or what people may traditionally know of genetic counselors. And so um, being able to highlight, you know, both those skills you've learned in training, but also what you find to be um, some of your strengths and how those can um, marry with what the um, leadership goals are. Uh, and then I just love what you said, Livia, in terms of uh, being a leader is not just that title. So for me, I was the first person in my role and able to grow, grow our lab stewardship program. And the vision was always to add people, but um, when I started, I didn't know what that would really look like. I really didn't have expectations for direct reports, uh, but I, I um, really liked the opportunity to, to lead in this new program. And so fortunately over time, we were able to grow the program and then not only our internal program, but we um, developed this external facing business plugs and that provided a whole new kind of layer of growing in terms of business and leading. Um, and what I love about the position so much is that it's given an opportunity for the team that we've built to have similar leadership positions. So it's this lovely sort of paying it forward. Um, and just, yeah, I wanna echo a lot of what has already been shared. Uh, but I think it's, it's taking those opportunities and not just seeing it as this is my title and this is how I'm going to lead, but these are ways that I can be seen as a go-to person and an expert in whatever exact role that you're in at that time. Yeah, that's really well said and that, you know, experts are leaders in their own right and being able to offer that knowledge to other people and um, just the ways that leaders can have all different looking roles. 
And so we've kind of talked about your experience and you know, what you value in leadership and how it can be in those different roles. But why is it advantageous for genetic counselors specifically to be in these leadership positions? We've talked about how genetic counselors you know, have these specific skill sets and everything, but why is it that genetic counselors really need to be in these leadership roles? Um, I've been thinking about this actually since um, we came up with, with this webinar invite and um, I think as genetic counsellors the nature of our role regardless of where we are and what setting we're working in, um, we have this ability to, to look at the past, present and future. We, we do that, you know, certainly in a clinical setting we, we do that with our patients but um, what it does do is it helps us to be quite strategic in the way we think. Um, you know, we, we look at other factors that impact whatever decision you're trying to make. Um, and I think that's really key in any leadership position, even if it's, you know, education and, and you know, Olivia was talking about with students, um, what they're bringing, um, what they have at the moment, where they're trying to get to. And I think that really allows us to challenge someone in the right ways um, and enhance the development of not only that individual, but whatever that task you're, you're trying to do. Um, so we're planners. I think most of us are natural born planners. Um, and that's great when you're trying to be a leader. Um, I would add that absolutely agree. Couldn't agree more. I would add to that, that it is important to have representation. Um, I think we're learning that living in today's age that representation matters. Um, I have the highest respect for my physician colleagues, nursing colleagues, PT, OT, audiology, etc. But they don't do what we do day in and day out. Um, and as our numbers grow, especially at larger academic tertiary care centers, we need to have um, people who speak for us, who have been in the trenches with us and know what we experience and the um, successes we have and the issues we face and the challenges we have to overcome on a daily basis. So I think having representation is important. It makes us also visible and it makes our role visible to the hospital administrative leadership. Um, there, of course, are genetic counselors um, nationally, internationally, who are also very much in the purely administrative um, leadership roles, truly senior administration roles, uh, which is not my role. Um, so having that leadership and representation at kind of mid-management level is critical to have our voices heard, have our concerns heard, and also for those who are interested to have the opportunities to advance to perhaps even higher leadership levels. But representation matters. Yes, definitely agree with that. Anything to add, Jesse? I just want to highlight a very sort of key uh, feature I think that we have as genetic counselors. We learn it in school. Um, it's just our ability to listen and communicate so clearly. Uh, I find that um, in settings where I see that there's a disagreement or something isn't going as well, it's often, it appears it's just that people aren't hearing the other person's perspective. And I just think as counselors, when I'm sitting in a room with my colleagues and then other non-counselor colleagues, you can see us all nodding and taking it in and then being very thoughtful with how we might approach the situation. And I just think that is our wheelhouse. You know, we're really good at at reading the room, understanding the, the broader um, picture, just like um, my other colleagues here have shared. Um, and, but being able to 
to have that perspective and then advocate for ourselves. Um, we're just, you know, it's like our Jedi trick um, that, that yes. strong communication is important. Yeah, I think in so many ways of, you know, you know, in conversations and getting key pieces of information across, but also just in our writing. And, you know, that is one of the, the core skills I think genetic counselors have. And, you know, how many patient letters have we all written at some point, you know, um, and just really being able to develop that way of directly communicating and that going a long way and being such a critical part of leadership. So we've talked about some of your roles in leadership and some of them being a little bit of what I'd consider out of the box. Are there other more out of the box leadership positions where genetic counselors may not think of themselves for these positions, but maybe they should be rethinking it and saying, oh, maybe I could fit in for a leadership position like this. Is there any that come to mind um, when talking about this? And uh, Livia, we can start with you this time. Sure. Um, I think uh, some of those are, again, perhaps a little bit less traditional, uh, which are various hospital committees, um, especially for those who work um, at larger hospitals. Um, they are often looking for people to fulfill um, those positions. Um, but as I said before, that requires that within your own program division department, uh, usually division, um, there is a recognition that that uh, responsibility to represent genetics or the voice of genetics can be shared among um, various um, providers, whether it's uh, physician geneticists, uh, scientist geneticists, or genetic counselors. So I think that would be kind of out of the box uh, opportunity that lets you uh, establish your name at your institution um, that sometimes um, is over uh, just not thought about but it's always out there because all those committees exist at all large institutions. Yes, really good point. Anything to add on that, Jesse? Yeah, I think that um, for me just to say if there's a, a genetic related company at all, for it, it carries so much weight for me to know if there's a genetic counselor involved in that. And so uh, it could be creating your own position there or um, finding a role that's a foot in the door and then moving up in the, in the position. Um, so, I mean, it's been many years now. There's many genetic counselors that function within laboratories that offer genetic testing. But years ago, that wasn't the case. Um, and I, I personally, when I would look at a lab and try and you know, decide whether that was someone that I wanted to try out, it carried so much more weight to have a genetic counselor involved, even if it wasn't you know, a traditional laboratory genetic counselor uh, viewing reports, because I know um, the perspective that a genetic counselor can bring is so valuable to how, you know, what the foundation of that company will look like, how they'll approach their business. And so I think it's really thinking creatively, you know, any company that has genetics as part of it, that we have a role to play there um, and that you can marry your interests in whatever that company is doing with your foundational skill sets as a genetic counselor. Yeah, certainly offers much more authenticity from our perspective to say, oh, someone that's very like-minded as a fellow genetic counselor endorses this company and that they stand by their values and what service or product they're offering. So I can, I certainly do that myself. I'm like, hmm, let me see if there's a genetic counselor on the board of directors or something like that. Um, anything to add, Vishaka? I think um, another sort of evolving space is probably the, the charity sector, you know, um, lots of um, upcoming charities and there will be, there will be more um, as we diagnose more conditions um, with technologies, um, certainly are always looking for genetics expertise and I think genetic counsellors are really well placed, um, particularly if they want to develop within a business um, and, you know, create 
um, that leadership opportunity themselves, exactly what Jesse was saying uh, before. You've got various policy development groups and think tanks as well that um, often put a call out for, you know, a really broad spectrum of healthcare professionals. And we just don't think that, um, you know, we might have something to add often. We, you, you, you know, you read an advert and you go, ah, I'm not sure, but actually you just don't know until you apply and ask the right questions. Um, and sometimes you'd be pleasantly surprised and find yourself, um, you know, uh, in, in something that's really exciting and valuable. So. You think, you know, I'm hearing from all of you in different ways that creating our own positions of not necessarily waiting for there to be a job hosting for a genetic counselor leadership role, but really to see, hmm, there's this company, they could use my skill set, and this is the way that I can pitch myself to them, and this is how I add value to the company or, you know, anything from that angle. Um, so I think that that's an important theme that I'm, I'm hearing from you. Um, I would argue that genetic counselors are advantageous in every area of healthcare. Um, but focusing in on areas that are desperately in need for genetic counseling, is there any that come to mind when you're focused on, you know, these are my top areas that I really wish I could see more genetic counselors in leadership positions? And Jesse, we could start with your thoughts this time. Well, those who know me well know this is a platform that I, I believe strongly in. So um, I would say in the health insurance space, uh, the payer space here in the United States is complex. It needs a lot of help and what better place for us to be rather than on the side of payer why won't you cover this um, but advocating for for um, medically appropriate tests and um, really being a voice for our colleagues uh, I, there's been a great growth of genetic counselors within the payer space but uh, there's so much genetic testing happening there's clearly opportunity for us to have a, a bigger role yes instead of fighting with insurance companies of really going from the inside and having more colleagues in that space. Yeah, I would definitely second that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Livia, is there anything that you'd like to chime in? I was thinking along the same lines. I think uh, our profession is not as well represented in the powerful organizations that lobby various payers, whether it be services for Medicaid and Medicare or um, other kind of powerful institutions in Washington. And I know that access is very hard and NSGC is doing a really good job um, of having advocacy there. And those are precious minutes that people can get with uh, people who really set the policies. But I think if our presence was there at more of these think tanks that influence policy nationwide, um, that would be advantageous um, if we are um, have a stronger voice and we participate with those think tank organizations and the national organizations. And it's by no means a criticism of any because I have not been active on that space either. And one has to decide their bandwidth and um, their ability to do things or their passion. What is their uh, passion? But I think when we hear genetically related topics discussed in media, of course, luckily we hear more and more genetic counselors interviewed, but there's still plenty when I watch it and it's, they're not reaching out to genetic counselors for input, opinion, public policy recommendations, et cetera. Yeah, that's a really good point of, as we're changing policy to have genetic counselors involved in that so that our voices are heard and that we're hearing you know, our expertise in that and that ends up being influenced. Um, so really important and exciting to see that more genetic counselors are entering that space, but we need even more than that. So uh, anything to add, Vishaka? I think I think in the UK, we, we're probably at a completely different um, space, actually, when it comes to this. So 
I think where there is scope for us to to further sort of um, go into is is the business side of it because you know everything is is nationally driven and um, you don't have uh, well you have less space for um, innovation and you know being an entrepreneur sometimes within um, the government sector so really going out to the commercial space would be what I would encourage um, all genetic counselors to to consider and draw from um, the experience and of colleagues um, in North America because um, it looks like you guys have heaps of experience there. <laughs> The cross-fertilization would be great. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's exciting to see that more genetic counselors are going into that entrepreneurial space and being able to share with each other because that is relatively new. You know, we weren't seeing that, say, a decade ago, um, that it's been much more in recent years of having genetic counselors starting their own companies and having different products, service uh, that they're offering. So it's certainly exciting to, to see that coming to fruition. And I want to remind our viewers that if you have any specific questions for our panelists here, feel free to add that into our uh, Zoom chat there. The Q&A section specifically would be great. Um, you can throw in your questions there. I could go all day, so I have plenty of questions, but if you want a specific question to be answered, certainly add that in the Q&A section. So my next question is, you know, looking at as genetic counselors are in more of these leadership positions, how do you foresee healthcare changing in response to us being more vocal, more involved? Um, and Jesse, we can start with you for this. I think I'll harken back to what I had shared before, which is really communication and um, particularly now with people being more remote, our traditional settings for communicating with one another have really kind of been turned on their head for many of us. I know a lot of people are in more um, fully remote positions um, as their day to day, but I, um, I feel that having counselors, you know, I see it in my colleagues, uh, you know, they'll say, oh, you're doing that counselor thing to me again. <laughs> and really all I'm doing is listening and reflecting back what they're sharing and trying to kind of move us all forward. Uh, so I see, you know, as more genetic counselors are involved in these positions, it's just that sort of thoughtful um, approach to, um, to the uh, conversation that we'll be able to lend um, and bring that expertise. Certainly. And Vishaka, do you have anything to chime in about that? just continuing on from what Jesse said, um, I think definitely more patient enabled care um, because we are we are so good at being advocates for our patients. You know, we do it every single day, be it on the phone or through our letters, because we do take time to and put in lots of effort into what we do. Um, we're just quite detailed driven as well. So, you know, we, we look at um, things that other maybe health professionals might not look at in so much depth. So I think as health care delivery changes, hopefully we can add some of that detail into patient decisions um, in the wider setting. And Livia, anything to add on to this? I think we're in a prime time to be uh, to continue to underscore our relevance. Genetics is no longer an academic pursuit for a crazy group of people who have this academic, esoteric interest to find out a cause for something very rare. I think um, as genetic testing and understanding what genetic and the therapeutics um, is exploding, um, we are in a slow but certain transition for genetics for those with rare diagnoses to genetics for everyone, um, from genetics in disease to genetics in health, um, because that also plays a role. 
and there is no way to turn this clock backwards. It will continue to grow and no other healthcare professional is in a better place to kind of implement that because it really genetics and genetic counseling is at the interchange of um, kind of scientific informational personal decision making, especially as we enter into genetics and health um, kind of approaches. Um, and then uh, working with other healthcare providers and physicians in terms of selecting the modalities of treatment um, that seem best appropriate given any circumstance, whether the risk is for cardiovascular cancer or neurologic condition. So we, we will be and will continue to be an integral part of the teams and our presence will grow and we just have to embrace it. Um, and then sometimes I think, um, we can be our own roadblocks because we are mostly trained to be uh, advocates for people where genetics is part of rare disease. But we also have to switch our mindset that genetics is part of health. Uh, genetics is part of aging and genetics is part of having a successful, healthy life uh, throughout. And I want to see our field go where instead of explaining what genetic counselor is or what a genetic counselor does, we in a decade or a couple of decades move to a point where there's genetic counseling across lifetime. What a newborn needs from genetic counseling is different than a teenager, a middle-aged person, or a senior citizen. So I think, and my hope is, that genetic counseling across lifetime will be part of um, healthcare, routine healthcare. Yeah, becoming a household name of we're not explaining what a genetic counselor is anymore. I like that goal. I think, you know, we spend a lot of time of, I'm a genetic counselor, like, oh, you know, you're counseling elderly. I'm like, no, not geriatric. And, you know, you go through those conversations. And I think you hit on a really good point of looking at our training. So, you know, we've been talking about genetic counselors that are already in the workforce that are been contributing to our field. But if we take a step back and look at how our genetic counseling training is, what would you like to see differently in terms of how we're trained to be more geared towards leadership positions and not necessarily maybe so focused on traditional clinical roles where we can start expanding this out a little more and also thinking about for genetic counselors that are already in the field, how we can improve continuing education credits and looking to see, all right, how are we looking at training that goes beyond grad school programs? Um, and so, uh, Vishaka, would you like to start out this round? So, so I think um, the, the pace of what we're doing and what we will be facing uh, in the future means that we are coming across, you know, a higher volume of whatever, whatever role you're in, you're just coming across a higher volume of, of things. Um, you're having to think really quickly on your feet, make um, quick decisions. And I think it may be helpful to think a little bit about building in um, frameworks for sort of resilience training in, um, in the grad school sort of entry level, and also thinking about how we all look out for, for each other. So in that, you know, we're all prone to compassion fatigue, particularly in clinical roles. I know that's not the only role, but actually how do you tell quite quickly and early on that a colleague might just need a break um, and you know step in and have that conversation um, and then the other area is a little bit in in terms of business development i think you know we need to be more 
competent and confident to go out and um, sell ourselves, uh, sell the packages that we are, because um, we, we're, I think we flounder a little bit because we haven't maybe had a, a formal sort of training route to that. Um, so if we could build in certain elements of that, I think that would be really helpful from my perspective. Yeah, very well said in terms of, you know, where where we're going and how we're going to get there for looking at the root of, of grad school and anything. Um, Jesse, anything to add on to Vishaka's comments? Yeah, I love, I love what you pointed out, Vishaka. I think even just a simple, this is what a business plan looks like. Um, a couple of years back, there was a working group with one of the, within one of the SIGs and we put together, you know, how do you advocate for yourself? How do you demonstrate you know, gathering metrics and being able to present that effectively to uh, leadership so that you can not only support your work, but grow. Um, and often that that's just fundamental to, um, to being a leader or growing a team. Uh, so I love that as a very tangible thing. And I think it would be an easy exercise to do. From the training program perspective, I think it's just simply, you know, uh, programs like this, being able to share uh, different perspectives and point to people who may not have as their title, this is my leadership title, but that are leaders and, um, and how they've been effective at doing that. So um, the more that you can see examples of where you might um, eventually land, I think the better you can foresee how you might get there. Uh, I know for me, when I um, started into school, it was just not a career where I thought there would be much upward mobility. And Frankly, it was, you know, it's no, no diss on my, my program or anything. It was just the state of things. And I think right now we have so many great examples to point to far beyond this panel. Um, and so just in integrating that into the training program and mentorship opportunities for students would be really critical. Yeah, I had similar thoughts and feelings as I was considering going into genetic counseling. And one of those was I'm very goal oriented person. I'm always looking at what's my next plans. And that was what I considered at the time to be a drawback of genetic counseling of, okay, once you graduate and you're working in say a clinical role that that's what the rest of your career is going to look like. And we can certainly debunk that myth. I think if people haven't understood that so far, um, just to put it bluntly that there are so many areas to be a leader and be creating these positions. So I think that's a really good point, Jesse, of looking at how we can change that mindset in grad school, because if we're changing that mindset, then more people are going to be seeking and, and creating these roles. Uh, Livia, anything to add on to this part of the conversation? Yes, um, two things. One, uh, representation matters. When we see our colleagues as leaders, we um, receive those messages. Two, I'll go on the limb and say, if you start your grad program or graduate school with um, an aspiration, how do I become a CEO or how do I start a business? I think you have to check back, is that the right career path for you? Um, because part of our strength is our training, uh, our classical training, our clinical training. And this is by no means to say that MBA training is not valuable. It is exceedingly valuable. I work with MBAs to um, balance the budgets and work on that. And I'm so thankful for them. But I am not there to bring an MBA perspective. Um, so I am there to bring a clinical genetic counselor, an experienced clinical educator perspective. And that is what my MBA colleagues cannot offer and I can offer. So I will argue that um, I think we need to keep everything that we have in our training programs that allows us to be really good genetic counselors. 
But I think embrace at the same time what many programs, at least the one at Penn has embraced, to have this professional development series or seminar that goes through the second year of training that's perhaps not as formal book-based, but kind of opportunities, webinars, et cetera. So I will never step away. I will always advocate that you need the hardcore academics, the hardcore clinical training. Um, and if that's not the right thing, then maybe that's not the right program. Um, because we bring that experience and that's the value added that I bring to the leadership table at shop, not the knowledge from MBA. And I think the other part that some of the colleagues have done is considered to get a kind of business leadership, organizational leadership um, degrees afterwards, if that's one's passion. And that is truly admirable because you truly are adding those business skills on top of the clinical skills. And I think we've seen physician colleagues do that and nursing colleagues do that. And that is a very, very powerful combination of education and background and experience to bring um, to that. So um, that is by no means to diminish the role, but I also uh, will always say perhaps a middle-aged genetic counselor perspective that our classical training is what is my strength, um, not the Excel spreadsheet management, which is my weakness, but I'm doing my best to learn it. Um, so I think we need to be proud of what we know and uh, then as people have gained experience, um, you know, look at other opportunities, look at other training, whether it's, you know, kind of more certificate-based programs that many hospitals offer in leadership or other institutions offer in leadership all the way to, um, you know, getting uh, a business or organizational management degree uh, to follow one's passion to kind of change organizational leadership and more genetics and genetic counseling plays a role. Yeah, I'm hearing from you that it's really important to know our strengths and know our weaknesses and being able to be aware of that so that we're pulling on our strengths and we can find people that can balance us with some of those weaknesses and that that's going to bring you far because you can see those positions where that's lining up with your skills. Um, and so thank you so much for people that are throwing questions in the Q&A. Feel free to add more questions there as well. We're going to get to those in just a few minutes. But before we do, I wanted to talk about imposter syndrome because this is something that, you know, I feel we need to talk about more in genetic counseling and that, you know, I argue that most genetic counselors at some point in our careers, if not multiple points in our careers, have experienced imposter syndrome of thinking, oh, I'm the genetic counselor now after graduating, or I don't have the right skills to be in a leadership role. Um, what advice do you guys have and, you know, your uh, perspective of being able to address this imposter syndrome and being able to work through it either by yourself or, you know, with colleagues? Uh, Vishako, would you like to um, start our thoughts on this? Sure. Um, I think... Um... Personally, uh, certainly in the UK, to maintain your professional registration, we uh, all have to access counselling supervision. Um, and that's a really helpful avenue um, because if you're, you're, you're feeling that and you've got imposter syndrome, then there's no better forum than to um, feel safe to be able to uh, share that and to really identify any practical strategies to um, either address that yourself personally and professionally, but also how to bring that up with your line manager because um, if you're feeling that, then actually um, it's highly likely that most of us have felt it at some stage and um, we already have strategies that we use that work for us. So, you know, um, use, use the, the wisdom and experience that exists um, and know that actually it's quite normal for 
most people to feel that in most professions. Um, uh, so use it to your advantage. Just identify what what is making you feel that way and um, nip it in the bud. Yes, certainly. <laughs> and Jesse, anything to add on to this? Yeah, I will just echo those thoughts and you know seek mentors and seek feedback. I think that's something that I've gotten better at. You know, when you're new, you're trying to prove yourself and any feedback feels really hard to hear. Whereas I feel like as you gain experience, I want more feedback. I want people to, yes. to share opportunities for how I can grow um, better in that. And I think that that does help. Although, of course, the, I mean, imposter syndrome, even, even coming on this, I thought, oh, why are they reaching out to me as a leader in this role? So it happens all the time. Um, and I think just the last thing, which has been so helpful to me from my, one of my own greatest mentors is just fake it. Um, if you're in something. Fake it till you make it. Honestly, yeah, that's one of, one of my slogans. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's that's a good perspective to have and, and that knowing that everybody feels this at some point um, and that, oh, that almost makes me normal that I'm feeling this at some point and, you know, I'm I'm checking myself with my skills, but also to have confidence in yourself and know that, you know, I'm having this role for a reason and reminding yourself of those reasons. Uh, Livia, anything else to um, add into this part? No, I would echo what my colleague said, but um, the one thing I strongly believe is know your facts, do your homework. You know, having that butterflies in your stomach about presenting and um, is okay. And if you don't, perhaps it's another reason to check in with someone, with a mentor or your colleagues or your other trusted people. But if you do your homework, um, and like all of us, um, all, uh, all of us prepared for this webinar, um, I don't have a tremendous experience of webinars. Um, I've just done a truly a handful of them. Um, but you're, if you do your homework, um, and the more you do it, and the more you are successful at presenting at various forums, uh, whether it be academic or commercial or just within your group, um, then you'll see that if you have um, the facts and you have the knowledge set, then presenting that to the colleagues uh, who will then be receptive because they know you're coming from a position of knowledge, position of strength, and you're not fluffing it. Um, so you'll be well received. So find that inner strength within yourself and know that you can do it. You've passed board exams, so you're definitely more than capable. Um, and then you'll do well. Yes, to really know yourself and know you have the knowledge and someone is seeking that knowledge from you, uh, I think can be really important. And one thing that we've kind of talked about a couple times now and referenced is mentors. And I think this is just such a major part of growing as a leader, either having a mentor, being a mentor. Uh, Ashaka, would you like to start us out on talking about how we can find mentors how we can develop these relationships and really what we should be looking for in a mentor during that process. So um, my first mentor was actually someone that had left the position I then took. Um, and uh, it, 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 was, it was the perfect combination because they were not involved in that. So in a formal capacity um, and therefore they the, the sort of there was a fine line between what they were able to influence uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, which is really important when you're trying to create, you know, your your space and uh, making your presence felt in a new new job. Um, I found I found that relationship really helpful because they had the insider view, they had you know the history uh, and how things um, had planned out, what had worked, what had not worked, um, and 
I found some of those conversations gave me, you know, put me a step ahead um, because I could really think about some of that decision making with them um, and then decide on my own how I wanted to take it forward. So I didn't feel that they were influencing me in a, in a way that I couldn't have control over, but rather, you know, it's um, here I am, uh, this is my experience, this is my wisdom, and you can pick and choose. And I think when you're looking for a mentor, you're, you're looking for someone who can be honest um, and share their experiences, both good and bad, so you can then learn from them without uh, trying to influence what you're doing and how you're doing it, um, is what I'd say. Yeah, I think that's really great advice to see someone that can, you know, be like an influencer and a guide, but not necessarily like a boss or director of telling you exactly what to do, but really giving you the perspective and someone to bounce ideas off of and having that hopefully be a different role um, than being in someone that's, you know, directly above you. Um, Jesse, anything to add on to uh, Vershaka's thoughts? I think um, I echo all of those and that um, be intentional about that relationship and seek the feedback. I think what's been most helpful to me is to um, set up time with people on a regular basis for our conversations and come prepared with some topic that I need help on. Um, it seems very simple, but I think it's easy to say, oh, I have a mentor, I'll reach out when I need to, but you really can grow more by having that intentional um, collaboration. And, and having someone who's not a genetic counselor. I think the most helpful people, I find them kind of in passing you know, a new relationship from, for me, you know, it's a strong woman who's a lawyer somewhere. And I think, gosh, she's doing great in her role. And we have so many parallels in the things that are challenging, um, and, but can help one another in, in our own unique positions. So. Yeah, sometimes we just come across mentors, other times we're seeking them out and just taking all that in and that it doesn't have to be a genetic counselor. I think that's a really good point you had, um, that we can look at people that are in kind of parallel journeys to us. Livia, what do you have to think about here? I couldn't agree more. I think mentorship is critical. Uh, we at the program that I co-direct, uh, Individualized Medical Genetic Center at CHOP, we started a mentorship program, a formal mentorship program. And I was truly at the encouragement of my co-director, who is a physician, because physicians and faculty members have had mentorship programs for decades. And we are expected to succeed um, parallel in a parallel universe, but also succeed academically, educationally, supervisionally, uh, clinically, um, scientifically, at least um, for those of us definitely who work at the big tertiary care academic centers, yet we never had it. So we took that very seriously, we looked at it and we modeled the genetic counseling mentorship program uh, to the faculty program. Uh, we are just as important as faculty. And uh, what Jesse uh, said is that having that program um, really allows us to focus and think. And um, we have set it up as a three-year program. It's voluntary at this point uh, because we have a very large institution. And as anything starts, I think this is kind of pilot project still for those uh, genetic counselors um, or uh, genetic counseling programs where their supervisor suggests, you know, it, uh, a new hire would really benefit. We do set up that program. We have three um, mentors for one mentee, one within um, definitely not a direct report. It definitely has to be someone who you're not reporting to and who's doing your evaluations. We are have the opportunity at Penn to have the adult hospital on one side and the pediatric hospital where I'm at, the children's hospital. So we definitely have a group of mentors from both sides of our bigger academic community connected to the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, we are looking for people who um, in the group who definitely have different genetics 
paths. If someone's very clinical, we're making sure we're connecting them with someone who has research interests. So to kind of expand their institutional knowledge, not just in their own thing, but also um, across the campus and also people who have other interests to kind of let people know. Um, those who are going through it and we have, we will have our first graduating class, they're in their third year, so to speak, uh, have given us good feedback. We strive for monthly meetings. Um, and I think um, having that formality is really helpful and no one is holding any. If you have to cancel a meeting, it's okay. If we hold 10 out of 12 meetings a year, that's a great success. Um, and the meeting doesn't have to be one hour and you come to my office or we have to have a Zoom meeting, you know, in before COVID, it wasn't meant, let's go grab a cup of coffee after rounds, you know, and let's chat for 20 minutes or let's have lunch together. Um, these days, of course, everything is scheduled. Um, but I think those formal mentorship um, committees have been there at universities for decades for a reason. They are helpful. Um, and I am proud that we have established a program we're offering to the broader genetic counseling community at Penn, uh, at CHOP, and then we've identified colleagues on the adult side who are interested in doing that. And I think it is helpful to echo Jesse's point again, when you have some structure that's within reason that you are asked to follow, results come, um, the results come for those who are interested to partake because having everything very loose, yes, I'll reach out, but then something else happens as opposed to when something is planned and there is an expectation set that uh, there will be meetings. Uh, and we, um, as a committee meet twice a year, we um, generate a report uh, once a year. And I think working with junior colleagues, uh, we are starting, and I think those of us who are mid-career direct uh, to point out, you do this, that is a small leadership role. You created a how-to for neurology genetic counselors, you know, how, what is a ABCs of being a genetic counselor in that program or in that clinic. That is a small leadership step. Put it on your CV. You create, that's already, you know, not just counseling someone for something that you took a programmatic approach. You volunteered to speak for this uh, advocacy group. That is a leadership position. So that's yeah. important. Yeah, definitely. And I would love to see this model being applied to genetic counseling training programs. So graduate programs where we already set up these mentors that can continue on for those first few years um, that there's a lot of changes as you're starting um, as a new genetic counselor, but also, you know, starting those connections so that you have those for your career. I think that would be a really cool thing to see. I know NSGC does also have the NSGC Connect where they offer that as well. So it'd be great to see, you know, just as the model you described, Livia, of seeing how that can be adapted to genetic counseling programs. Um, so we're going to get to a couple questions from our viewers now. Um, so our first question reads, it feels more like GCs are seeking additional degrees like MBAs or other professional training. Curious what the perspectives are from these leaders about the need for this to be considered for leadership positions. Um, does anybody want to um, start on this question? I know we talked about MBAs a little bit before. Livia, did you want to jump in? Sure, I can jump in. I think um, it depends what the leadership position one wants. I think one can seek out leadership positions, as again, as I said, in content and process, and those don't require an MBA degree. Those do not require that. I think if someone's goal is to be uh, president, 
CEO um, of a big, whether it be company, uh, commercial company, or uh, pharmaceutical company, or hospital system, then that advanced degree, I think, would be a requirement. Uh, but I would recommend instead of going for that degree right away, explore those leadership options that are there available without a business degree um, and see if this is something that interests you because that degree is certainly extremely valuable and attainable. Um, but I would recommend that everyone to start with smaller leadership skills. And I think one thing I've noticed is um, we need to have patience. You know, you cannot expect to be to be lead a team of genetic counselors three years after you graduate. You know, there are probably some extremely talented people, but uh, for most of us, the situational institutional knowledge and the learning we do by going through the steps of um, managing patient relationships, managing larger teams or um, healthcare delivery teams for whether it be a condition or patient population or for a program and then looking at other things, each of those little leadership uh, uh, or so to speak lower level non-traditional leadership opportunities lets you grow as a person and lets you become a better leader. But um, yeah, if you want to be a CEO of a company or a hospital or healthcare system, that MBA will come in very, very handy. Yes, certainly. And paired with experience, sometimes just having enough experience kind of speaks for itself and a degree is not necessarily needed, especially for these newer areas as we create them. Any other thoughts before we move on to our next question? Okay, so our next question is retraining as part of a new program in the UK, STP. I had the opportunity to go to the USA to see how genetic counseling works there, which was an invaluable experience for my perspective and for my development as I start my career. Are these opportunities, are there these opportunities within other GC training programs for traveling to other departments, perhaps after COVID? Um, does anyone on the panel have any thoughts about this? Sorry, Vishaka, do you want to go first? I just had one quick thought. Um, Unfortunately, we don't, we don't have um, a, a genetic counselor from Australia but, and New Zealand, but we often do get um, trainees um, and students coming from there um, on placement. Um, and we also have started to get some um, students coming from sort of the South uh, East Asian subcontinent, South Asian subcontinent. So think um, that there are more opportunities within um, training programs for exchanges, but Jesse might know, know more than me. <laughs> I was just going to echo that. I actually think in many ways right now, the fact that we have become more fluid and are having more interactions virtually like this, it'll actually have open more opportunities. Uh, it, it's been hard to get our feet under us. You know, we had a student this last summer and we were trying to figure out how do we do this when we're not all there. Um, and it all worked very well. And I think what it proved to us was that we actually can do, do more and interact with people from afar. Um, and so, um, so I actually think this is a really nice opportunity to, to consider expanding that. Yeah, certainly telehealth has offered many more opportunities for connecting with people worldwide, just like our conversation today. Um, and also just to uh, add in that some program, especially in the US, um, I come from the Sarah Lawrence program that one of my classmates had gone to Singapore for her summer rotation. So um, that's also something that I know of many of the US programs, where if you really want to go somewhere that either you can set up yourself for your summer rotation. So between the two years of grad school, or that there might already be relationships set up to 
go to different countries and see how their healthcare system works. And um, I can see how advantageous that is to just bring back to your own country um, and integrate that into your workflow. Um, so our next question is, for those of you who manage people, what do you see as the qualities of a GC that are valuable for this management position? What might work against this success in this area? Does anyone want to uh, start out answering that question? I can say, um, you know, um, it's a strength and a weakness, right, is one is um, that we are open to hearing um, people's perspectives. We are trained to hear people's perspectives and we're trained to highly respect people's opinions. Um, and that is a strength that we bring to it. Sometimes in certain situations, whether it's administrative or programmatic, um, there needs to be a decision made or a decision is made for you at the hospital level or company level and you have to enforce that decision. I think that for um, many of us that does not come naturally to say, no, this is how it is. I hear your perspective. I value it, but this is how it's going to be. So uh, the first time I had to do it, it's um, a little counterintuitive to enforce uh, or um, demand something that is um, there. One truly obviously has to believe there is a higher purpose for that demand and buy into this. Um, so I think it's a strength and weakness. The other part is we are used to delivering um, difficult news uh, to people and doing it in a way that doesn't tear down the person, um, but uh, delivering news in terms of management um, that still sends a message we value you as a person but this is this job description or this is this this is a, not a, um, this is about content this is about performance this is not a judgment of you as a person so i think those kind of experiences um, are helpful um, to be uh, to come from that clinical background yes you hit on a lot of good points there any other thoughts before we wrap up our webinar today I want to thank all three of you, Jesse, Vishaka, Livia, thank you so much for being on here. I mean, we really dived in deep into topics. We weren't talking about leadership on a surface level. I really appreciate all of the insight that you've brought onto this and that we've recorded this so people can watch this back as well um, of just all the areas that we talked about of how to become a leader, um, what kind of leadership positions are available, what to create, what we want to change in genetic counseling and how we want to change healthcare. Um, we've really covered a lot in this last hour and I wanted to tease our next webinar, which is gonna be on Wednesday, November 4th at noon. Eastern time. So same time as wherever you are listening from today. Again, that's Wednesday, November 4th. The topic we are going to be diving into with another panel discussion is the adoption and impact of digital tools in genetic counseling. So I'm going to be joined by Scott Weissman, Amy Taylor, and Andrew McCarthy to discuss those topics and wanted to remind people um, to check us out online. So you can check out DNA Today podcast on DNA Today, sorry, dnapodcast.com or search DNA Today on social media and your podcasting apps. And to check out Phenotips, you can search Phenotips as well on social media and stay updated on our webinars. You're gonna see a feedback link emailed to you. So please, we'd really appreciate if you could take a minute to offer your feedback about this webinar and future topics that you would like to see us cover. Um, thank you so much again, uh, Rashaka, Jesse, and Livia for coming on today's program and being leaders in genetic counseling and helping to 
blaze these new paths that we all have and really appreciate just hearing from each and every one of you about your experiences. And honestly, I could talk about this for hours, but thank you so much for joining us with the Phenotip Speaker Series today. Thank you for the opportunity. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Kira. Thanks. All right. Thank you to all the viewers for tuning in. Uh, really appreciate having you. And we're looking forward to seeing you at the next webinar. Again, that's going to be November 4th at noon Eastern time. And that's on a Wednesday. So thank you so much for tuning in today. We really appreciate having everybody tuning in. So looking forward to seeing you all next time. So thanks for joining us.